you have any ambition to create games? Um, I've, you know, thought about it a little bit, but to be honest, the reality is, is I'm, I'm not that smart. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And joining me today is the co-host and co-founder of the Board Games Hot Takes podcast, this is Tim Dolliff. Welcome back to the show. Kind of back to the show. We'll get into it. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah. We had some technical difficulties. They were on my part. Uh, some things fell apart. We tried arranging this earlier. Things got screwy. Things got haywire. But now we're back to record uh, another discussion, a delightful discussion with another podcast host. You're in luck in that I have a terrible memory, so... Whatever we talked about before, I have no memory of it. You can ask me the same questions, different questions. It'll be fresh for me. Okay, excellent, excellent. I think we got like deep into Dune lore, and then I, I think there was some hijinks about like running and your climate versus my climate. But I like keeping it fresh. So why don't you tell me like what's new in the world of board game hot takes? Like what what's fresh on your mind? What have you been getting to the table lately? Uh, yeah, so let's see. This week, well, I just got Frosthaven in the mail, so that was fun. Exciting. Got a chance to unbox it and, and sort everything, and I talked a little bit about that on our last episode. Otherwise, we played uh, Endless Winter this last week. That was our last episode that came out, and that was a, a, a surprise for me. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to find it too bloated, too clunky. It was pretty streamlined, surprisingly. And we just got a little oldie but goodie back to the table this week, and that was Dungeon Pets, and that's what our next episode's going to be on. So, uh, yeah, you know, variety of stuff. Oldie but goodie, I like that. And Dungeon Pets certainly is a classic, one that I'd like to see more people play. And that, that's something that I think about a lot in our hobby, is that we move on into these new hotnesses, or I guess chillnesses, coolnesses, with uh, Frosthaven. But we pass by all of these games that are incredible games that are foundational to our hobby, but they don't get talked about because of the zeitgeist and everything. We don't really have like a Criterion collection of board games. Someone should really start that at some point. But like when you're reflecting on the games that you most want to play, do you find yourself in a position where you are constantly feeling obligated to newer games or or do you find that you get a lot of time with the classics as well yeah no it's a blend for me i'm not at all committed to new hot hotness um and you can see that you know our channel we release a uh, usually a recording about a specific game every week mm -hmm. and we have a pretty good mix and i'd say we even lean more towards classics things that were released prior to the current year than we do brand new games and uh, part of that is just because it's the games we want to play you know we're just we're, we love the hobby we love exploring all these games there's so many great games out here and uh you know we don't need to be trying every new game that comes out we want to try the ones that people have been talking about for years and then once in a while a new one's going to catch our attention and we get excited about it and so then we'll try to get to that that to the table soon but we you know we just recorded our top games we want to play list for this year and we do this every year since we started the podcast three years ago and i would say probably 30 you know maybe three out of five games that each of us had on our list were probably five years old or older so you know we're still trying to find all those classics we haven't had a chance to play yet explore them and some of my favorite games of all time were you know we're not new and you rely on uh playing things on tabletop simulator a lot that's where you go to for a, a lot of your uh gaming for the podcast right 
It's a mix, um, but mostly online platforms. Since our my co-hosts were all located geographically in different locations, uh, Tabletop Simulator is where we can find almost any game. Um, we prefer Board Game Arena, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. I mean, we've been hitting Anachrony hard. It's in alpha right now <laughs> right. recently. Uh, what a great game to have on there. So it's always great when we can when we can find awesome games on board game rain and there's a ton out there a ton a ton of great stuff i still haven't played yet so that's our go-to but you know you're not going to find everything there so tabletop simulator tabletopia yukata any platform that uh that a great game's on we'll, we'll search it out was there ever any trepidation that you had at first like you were going somehow compromise the gaming experience by playing on a virtual platform i know you're a magic the gathering guy and so a lot of people who dip their toes into the world of tabletop gaming with magic kind of got that transition by switching to online magic there are certainly a lot of board gamers out there who are like the physical experience is what i'm actually looking for and they are still resistant towards virtual implementations yeah i mean that's a that's a great question the reality is we don't have that option so when we started this podcast it was right after covid you know kind of hit us we all decided let's be safe and we stopped gaming together in person and this is three friends that were hanging out almost every week Uh, started doing it online and we're like, Hey, we're doing this online. Let's go ahead and start talking about it online afterwards. And then we all moved to separate places. So, you know, COVID kind of split us up and we made use of it. And and this is where we are today. So, um, you know, it's, of course it's not ideal, like hundred percent. Like we, we talk about that every time about how many plays we had, what platform we played it on. And we talk about what we know and don't know about the components. And there's of course an element to that at the end of every episode, of course, we also cover, uh, you know, games that have been on our table. And this is usually each of us independently talking about the games we've locally been playing. And so we can get into the the context of the, the you know, the feel of a game and stuff like that. And, and many of the games that we review as well, one or more of us have at least played it physically in the past, not always. So we try to, you know, talk about that, but we're, you know, we just try to be honest about it. But sure, absolutely. I'm like, somebody asked a poll question on Twitter today, you know, what's your preferred gaming platform is it in person is it online and i said 100 percent in person even though probably 50 percent of my gaming is online whether it's async on board game arena or it's with my friends mm-hmm. to record the podcast every week gaming in person is is my ideal it's what i want to be doing but i've been doing it long enough as well i mean you know a 20-year magic the gathering player as you mentioned um you know now five or six years in the board gaming hobby i have a pretty good sense for what translates to a digital platform and what um, you know what's missing there and I think we can talk about that to some extent well your physical collection has just uh, doubled in weight I'm sure with the arrival of Frosthaven <laughs> tell me about your actual gaming group that you can play physical games with is Frosthaven one of these games that you're going to find the players to play with is this you know something you'll play with your partner is this something that you'll solo you know, how are you going to get this game to the table? Because it's no easy task just to get that thing started. Yeah, that's a great question, Jack. And I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> when I bought Frosthaven two and a half years ago or three years ago, I honestly bought it expecting to solo it primarily. Right. And I bought it when I was still, you know, in my old home, to, my old town with my friends. Thought maybe we could get a play, but I was really expecting to solo it. And then we all separated and moved away. Now, I got a chance to play Gl- Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, and I soloed that. Mm-hmm. And I had a decent amount of fun with it, but... For me, the way to do it is going to be playing two or more characters, mm-hmm. and I found it a little bit too heavy for me to enjoy right, as a solo right, experience. Right. So I don't want to solo Frosthaven, um, and I almost I actually tried to give it away on our show, and it took so long. You know, I gave it away to somebody, <laughs> and then it took so long to arrive. I ended up feeling bad, and I gave him a gift card. They asked for that instead of waiting for forever. But now I've got it. I'm kind of excited about it. So 
Uh, I've been here where I live now in Phoenix for like two and a half years, started to put together a couple different game groups. And what I plan to do over the next couple of weeks is basically just talk to talk to some of my local gamers about it and ask if they're interested. And if I can get a three or four person group together that'll get together once a week or every couple of weeks to do this, that's my hope. Uh, if not, it may not stick around. Maybe I'll try a couple solo games of it and then move it on. But I, I am hoping to get a local group together. I just don't have them picked out yet. So you talked about the origins of Board Game Hot Takes as a podcast, and then that happened during COVID, and you guys split up, and now you're doing things primarily virtually. How have your tastes as a gamer evolved since doing the podcast? Because I'm certain your exposure to games and also critically thinking about those games kind of changes how you view what you were interested in, what you most want out of games, what you certainly don't like. How do you feel about, you know, that, that evolution over the last few years? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, I would say it hasn't changed drastically. And I'll try to speak for myself and my co-hosts a little bit is that I was always kind of a Euro gamer, mm -hmm. uh, mechanism focused. You know, I, I got introduced to a game that had cool mechanisms and I was like, wow, this is great. And so that's where I was really focused. And I was never a big fan of high interaction Um Believe it or not, as a magic player, but that's a little different. There's a long I could go into a long diatribe about why a, a two person one on one head to head game is different than a multiplayer game. This is a, a podcast, my friend. There <laughs> if there is ever room for a long diatribe, it is this. <laughs> and generally though, you know, I I, I haven't loved the um, the scenario of, of like area control games, high conflict, um, uh, you know, uh, King of the Hill, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's just my, not my favorite. But uh, my friends, on the other hand, love that stuff. They love the interaction. They love that type of take that. They love, you know, they, they love player interaction in a way that Euros often don't give you. Um, and I think we've all shifted a little bit more to the center of that whole conversation over three years of playing a unique game every week and many, many other games outside of those. Um, you know, I, I, what I have found is that even though I still love these mechanisms, I still love Euro style games. I still love my multiplayer solitaire games. I also know that the most fun that I ever have at a table with people is when there is some kind of interaction, you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be mean necessarily, but it has to be a way to have an impact on the other games to care what other people are playing. And sometimes the most fun games are even, you know, lighter games. They're, they're almost party style games. And I've, I've, you know, taken to accept that and, and find more fun in those. But um, but I still love my heavy euro. So I would say it hasn't shifted drastically. What I have found, though, is just like anything, when you get exposure to a lot of something, you start to get a little bit more picky. Mm -hmm. You start to identify what's better, what you know, what's been done better before. What is this doing better than before? What's unique about this? And so I definitely am not as... Um, you know, I, I don't know, I, as gracious about how every game is an amazing game, <laughs> yeah. right? There's a lot of games that I'm like, I wish I was playing something else. And so, you know, that, that just happens. though. I think anytime you really get deep into, into a hobby and, and it doesn't matter what it is. Right. Right. Now, I, I wonder if this is something that's uh, more common towards uh, people who are in the content creating space, the people who are putting on conventions, you know, the people who are really trying to share their love of gaming with the masses that a lot of the love for games comes out of the experience of having other people fall in love with games. Like I find that a lot of the games that I love most at this point are not just the games that I know that I can get played, but I'm kind of like ambivalent to experiences so long as the people that I'm playing with are uh, having a great time. 
that's not to say that I there aren't things that I love or dislike in a game, uh, but I know that uh, it's going to seriously weight a game in uh, in the favor of me enjoying it if I'm sitting there and like my kid loves it or my wife is absolutely into it or my best buddy is sitting over here and he's like, oh, dude. I didn't get root before, but suddenly I get root, and then I'm like, I know, right? Now all I want to do is play more root. Uh, do you find that you know, like that was part of the the instinct for you to dive deeper in the hobby is not just you getting to play games, but shepherding other people into gaming? Yeah, I think that's always been some truth. I mean, when I was uh, when I really got heavy into gaming to start with, I knew a couple people that were in it and it kind of brought me into it. And then I immediately was like, we need more of this. And I put together a game group and I mostly just brought in friends, people that had no, like they, they had no knowledge of the board game hobby at all. Uh -huh. And I was just like, Hey, Tuesday night, come over to my house. I'm going to teach you a game. Let's right. try it. And it was so fun when you start to see those people. In fact, this just happened with my neighbor down the street who I introduced to some games recently where they, you can see them just get, start to get excited and enthusiastic about this. And that, that obviously is great. But that, then it's going to lead you toward the games that are going to make them happy. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, like you you introduce it, you're like, oh, this is the best movie I've ever seen. You tell a friend that and you really want them to love it. You yeah, want to watch totally. it with them and you want them to be laughing at all the right points. And and it's kind of like a, a board game is the same way. So I do really try to pick games that I think the audience I'm playing with are going to have fun with and are going to like. Right. And my two most regular uh, the people I play with the most are my wife and our really close friend, Jen, who's who spends a lot of time with us. Her kids are about my kid's age and we spend a lot of time together. And they love gaming. We, we, we game every time we get together, usually a few times a week. And they have a little bit different taste in the games that they love. Mm -hmm. So we play the games that they love because I want them to be having fun and I'm glad people are playing games with me. But it doesn't mean that 100% of the time I'm going to want to play the games that they want to play or the exact game that they want to play. So, you know, you still have to, uh, you know, you have to you have to take care of yourself a little bit. You yeah. have to be a little selfish once in a while and say, I don't feel like playing that game again for the 100th time. Can we try something different tonight? And, right, and if, right. if I didn't do that, right, they don't want to learn new games. They love the games they love. But if I never did that, they would have never been exposed to some of their favorite games because I was like, wait, you know, let's try something different tonight. I know you're going to groan about it, but once they got through it, they loved it. So, you know, it's a little bit of a push and pull, but it's, I think it's good for everybody to, for, for everyone to get a little bit of happiness out of it. It's a unique hobby. I mean, compared to other hobbies, you have a selfish, a vested interest in converting new people to gaming because to get the best experience out of most of the games. I mean, solo gaming is better than it's ever been, but the, yeah. the generally accepted best experience that you're going to have with most games is with other players. And so unlike telling someone about like, hey, check out this movie. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean that I want to watch every movie with you. I need to hook you as a gamer. So that way I have someone <laughs> who can sit down and play games with me. So we kind of proselytize. It was so funny, you talking about your neighbor or, you know, talking about, um, you know, these friends who had never played games before and had very little concept of it. That's kind of what we do, right? We, we just kind yeah. of grab the nearest person where we're like, your opinion on gaming hasn't been formed yet, so I'm going blow your mind to like you know, coworkers <laughs> and social service, you know these like child protection service workers who I'm like, hey, you want to play a board game at lunch or you know like going over to someone at the coffee shop or you know like any 
gathering that I can get to with my friends's or my kids's friends's parents or something be like, oh yeah, I thought I'd uh, break out this game. Um, it's called uh, Sprawlopolis. It's only 18 cards, <laughs> but you might like it. Um, it. We just find opportunities to try to get these people to play games with us, but it's what we need to do. But I want to go way back. Like, I'm talking way back because you, you said 20 years of magic playing. When's the first time that you recall having a game interest you as, like, a hobby unto itself? You know, something where you're like, oh, I want more of this. Well, when I was a young kid, so my, I grew up in kind of a gaming family, traditional, though, mm -hmm. you know, totally. uh, you know, traditional board games, you know, this the stuff everybody's played. Um, and I always liked games. It's always something that was fun to us. But I had a brother that was about a year and a half older than me. And so, of course, we were into everything together. And we got exposed to the concept of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, we never owned any Dungeons & Dragons materials, but we started creating our own characters. And we started making up our right. own stories about what to do. We didn't know how the mechanisms worked, but we kind of gleaned from hearing about it, how it might work. And, you know, it was way even back then where we were just like, we need more of this. Like we need more ways to, to create, to, to, we started turning everything into a game. We had garbage pail kids and we right, turned it right. into a war style game. We had, you know, like everything was a game. Stratego was something that hit for us for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those were some early ones, but you know, Magic the Gathering is, is, is the one that really took over my, my whole mindset about what, what I wanted to be spending my free time doing. And I got introduced to that when I was, I don't know, 19 years old, 1996, probably, uh, shortly after high school. And uh, my brother taught it to me and I immediately got hooked. And it, it's like, it's all I wanted to do for 20 years until I discovered hobby board games, to be honest, um, which I feel like has has kind of deepened my love for what you can do on a tabletop just because of the, the variety, the, the unique experiences you can get out of it. But yeah, I would say magic is, is kind of the one that really grappled me in, but it's been there since I was a little kid. Do you still dip your toes into magic? I love magic, but uh, you know, I don't have anyone local that plays with me. I still have a cube. Mm -hmm. I have a, an eight person cube of some of my favorite cards of all time that I'm just waiting for someone to say like, Hey, you want to play magic? And yeah, we'll do a Winchester draft or we'll get a few people. I don't know. Maybe it'll happen someday. Um, I have a couple friends that will visit occasionally that I used to play magic with. So we'll bust that out once in a while, but that's about it. I know that if I get into the arena world, I will not stop. And I, I just don't have that kind of time. So I haven't got, I haven't dug into magic arena. Um, probably will get tempted one of these days and, and go deep, but, uh, not too much anymore. Do you have a favorite magic card? Oh boy, I haven't thought about that for a long time, so I'm gonna say no. Okay. I'm not gonna. I'm okay. gonna say no. I could probably tell you. I could. I've got a, a favorite set. Okay. What's your favorite, a favorite set? Favorite set because it's it's Invasion. Okay. It was the first multicolor right. set, and it was the first time I ever went and got into the tournament scene of Magic, mm -hmm. and I just remember the love of that experience of going to pre-releases and then going into, uh, you know, booster drafts, and that's kind of where I really got into competitive magic, got into sealed and, and limited magic in a significant way. Right. And it was just a fun set to do it with. Yeah, when I think about my favorite magic card, th this is ridiculous because every magic player is going to roll their eyes at this, but it came in at a very formative time in my life where I I was just discovering fantasy. Uh, like I had been recently exposed to the 1977 Hobbit cartoon film. And that was so outside of the scope of anything that was in my household. It was actually my uncle who kind of like corrupted me. He had it on VHS and 
uh, totally not my dad's style whatsoever. And I was like, oh my God, I want more of this. And shortly after, uh, magic kind of stepped into my life and myself and my older brother got into it. And I remember that uh, we had some cards from prior sets uh, and it was right around the era of revised, maybe into fourth edition and then Ice Age. But specifically, I can remember Hurlun Minotaur, which I have a signed print on my wall that shows up in a lot of videos and people are like, oh, Hurlun Minotaur. Uh, and Sengir Vampire, uh, which kind of like blew my mind because I was like, I'm young, but I'm pretty sure there's something both uh, grotesque and sexual about this card. Uh, and the one that made the most impression on me was Mon's Goblin Raiders, a 1-1 for one mana. What's impressive about that? First off, the artwork, nothing looks like Mon's Goblin Raiders in contemporary fantasy, like the things that were coming out at that time. It was just a weird illustration and it was an apostrophe s and they filled that flavor text to the brim who is mon and why does he have goblin raiders are these goblin raiders why do they kind of look like khan from star trek i mean like it, it was so perplexing but my mind could not stop thinking about mon and his goblin raiders and who this was in the context of dominaria and then some, suddenly i'm like what is Dominaria? And it totally pulled me in. Every card pack, the first thing I would do before I even looked at any of the mechanics, because I knew my brother was going to beat me. He's four and a half years older than me, so he, he just used me as a punching bag. I'd still play the game for sure. But every pack that I opened for the first two years of playing Magic, I would look at the flavor text first because I wanted to know what was going on. And then suddenly this Ice Age was happening in the same world. And who's Lim Dole, the sorcerer, and all these things. But I think that all started with Mon's Goblin Raiders and realizing that there, there's some implication here. Uh, and for that amount of thematic resonance to come out of some stupid 1-1 one, one for 1 mana is brilliant and the the sets continue to evoke all of these really deeply thematic concepts with quite abstract terms i mean the game is a very abstract game when you get right down to it but somehow they're able to convey so much with these cards so mon's goblin raiders for me uh, that, that's <laughs> that's a story that i haven't even thought about in a while yeah, it's in that that uh, it's amazing how well they've managed to keep that going for so long. And I know I, Wizards of the Coast has made some missteps this last year. I, <laughs> yeah, you know, with with multiple properties, Magic being one of them. I haven't been following it too much, but you know, just the amount of effort that they put into the art direction, into the world building, into the uh, the, the mechanisms, and the you know, making that game stay alive and thrive for I don't know what we're coming up on thirty years now at this point. It's it's impressive, and you have to. I think every you know modern board game designer should play Magic if they have, and most of them probably have. You should be following Mark Rosewater's uh, design, uh, uh, you know, blog if if he's still putting it out. He was for a long time. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. If he still totally. is, but um, you know, I learned it taught me a lot about the way I think about not only game mechanisms and what's interesting or unique about game mechanisms, but about what's uh, you know good strategy mm -hmm. even yeah. you know the way you you weight the, how you value things has carried through from my magic days and and through learning about the design of magic into even modern design modern games. Did you ever read like Duelist or Inquest? I'm I'm trying oh, to yeah. remember the specific magazine that would have the 
setups for like here's the situation you know you have four to life left this is what's tapped and this is untapped and you have to be able to do x y and z i love those yeah yeah yeah. these puzzles right exactly but i think that's more than anything what taught me because again i i was young getting into magic um what taught me to think about like every action as a resource and that carried over into playing uh strategic board games which not to say that i'm like some phenomenal player or anything but it gave me a much deeper appreciation for how you're supposed to contextualize every single interaction that you have with the game as a a potential resource that you can spend um which I guess brings me to the next stage in the story. You're playing magic for 20 years, and then someone is like, hey, you like magic? Let me show you this thing. What's the game that kind of blew your mind and just overturned your pre-existing notion of what board games were? Yeah, it was a little more complicated than that, but um, I, you know, I was introduced to some modern board games through the years while playing magic. Mm-hmm. I played Carcassonne and Catan and um, you know, a handful of other Battlestar Galactica and enjoyed all those plays. But my my mind was, you know, my heart was always with magic. So I didn't really get too moved into them. Uh, and then I moved to a new city, didn't really have anyone local that was playing. So I was still thinking about magic, but not playing it a lot. And my wife met some people and said, hey, these guys, these, you know, this couple's into board games. You want to have them over for a game? And I'm like, absolutely. We got to do this. And they brought over, and this is a, a current modern gamer. If you walked into their house, they had Calyx shelves with yeah, you know, 300 yeah. games on them, more games than I even knew existed. Um, but they walked in with Agricola. Mm-hmm. And Agricola was the first game we played, which in my mind is a heavier game that I would typically introduce to somebody for the first <laughs> yeah. time on a game night. They brought it in and had a wonderful time with it. It was tight. It was hard. Every decision mattered. And worker pl- I got introduced to worker placement for the first time. Absolutely loved it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I have to kind of credit Agricola, but I think I would have been caught in no matter what it was. And every game that you know, it was me then after that, like, hey, we played three games tonight. What do we play next week? And it's like, you know, I just wanted to keep it going immediately. So but I think it could have been anything. It could have been anything. So with Agricola, one of the things that I look out for in that game is that it is so punitive. Like, did you have any sort of friction with your first experience? Like, or, or did you, you know, like, uh, see the possibility? Like it's very tenuous to introduce someone to that game. Not because I think it's overly complex. I actually think a lot about the game as intuitive. However, if you aren't able to do it well, then it will punish the hell out of you. I remember it feeling hard uh, you know, to do that, but I won that night. So that probably helped a lot, <laughs> yeah. but my wife enjoyed it too. And right. she, you know, she didn't. And, you know, we were all, you know, worried about the, the hunger tokens or whatever they are. Right. And so it was a challenging first play. And, uh, what I remember to be more complicated to get into and why I think it's a little heavy is when you got those occupation and the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the improvement cards, there's just so much that people have to take in on a first play. Oh, and yeah. I don't, if I remember right, I don't think we drafted, you just handed us seven totally. of each. So you got 14 cards in your hand and you're like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? And you end up only playing two or three of them. Mm -hmm. So that felt, I remember feeling like this is a whole lot of information for not a lot of payoff. Of course, that's my favorite part of the game now. But back then it felt like way more than you want to introduce somebody to on a first play. Have you played Agricola solo? 
Uh, I tried it one time and didn't enjoy it very much. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I have I have played it. So I tried it one time and didn't enjoy it very much until I played the campaign mode, uh, oh, nice. which uh, I don't know if it was introduced in the revised edition or not, uh, but it recontextualized Agricola for me as a solo game because generally I don't like solo games where it's like get a certain number of points and you're like yeah. oh, okay well that's kind of lame um you know you got x points and that doesn't mean you won you just did better than the lower tier that you could have gotten but in the campaign mode uh you have to meet a certain point threshold and you get to save one of your occupations which becomes persistent in the next game and then the uh, the the point total that you have to meet each game uh, ratchets up. Nice. And having that sense of investment that you might play a card that would be suboptimal this game or go out of your way to set yourself up with something just so you can make sure that that's part of your loadout pre-existing at the beginning of the next game uh, was something that I was like, suddenly Agricola solo actually matters to me. I haven't had much chance to talk to people about it. So it was yeah, an opportunity. I like that. That sounds, yeah, it sounds super fun and I, I should get dig into it. But interestingly, my relationship with solo games has been changing as well. Yeah. When I got into solo games, I think it was mainly just in an absence of other players, right? Uh -huh. I was getting into this hobby, I'm buying games, but nobody's, uh, maybe I'm getting a game played once a week, but I've got all these great games I want to try. And so I started getting them into solo just for the opportunity to get them to the table, which mm -hmm. was great. And, and it was a fun way to explore them. Um, my, I still like to solo game, but my choice on solo games has shifted a little bit. I tend to be, to go towards something that's either storytelling. Like mm -hmm. I recently discovered Arkham horror LCG. Oh yeah. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's fun or at least something that's a little bit shorter and quicker things like under falling skies, things like, um, I'm trying to think like, Oh, paperback adventures is a game that I've been just absolutely loving solo lately. Uh, the heavier Euro games, I'm tending to not go to solo anymore just because uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I like the experience more playing with, with real people and the competition absolutely. against real people. I like a campaign experience though. So the idea of bringing it out a grickle like that, it's tempting. I might have to give it a shot. You, you might give it a shot. And plus it plays pretty quickly. Like, especially yeah. if it's something that you could knock out a couple of games and, in maybe an hour and a half or something like that, especially if you know what you're doing. But okay, so you know you you get into the hobby. Eventually, uh, you get to the podcast, uh, which is where you're at now. Like, what what are the goals for the future? Like, what do you uh, expect out of this podcast? Are you trying to make this a full time job? Is this purely hobby? Um, you know, like, do you want to evolve into different avenues? Like, what are the ambitions for the future? I don't know how to answer that, to be honest. And I think about it a lot. When we started the podcast, my goal primarily was to have the opportunity to get to know some of the people that I was interacting with, uh, you know, not really but watching mm -hmm. in the board game world. Uh, people like yourself, other content creators, right. you know, board game designers, <laughs> board game, yeah. um, you know, uh, reviewers and, and, and things like that. And so that was kind of one of my goals. And that's it's paid off. It's been great. I've built a fun community of other content creators. I've gotten to have interactions with and chats with game designers that almost feel like celebrities to me. And that's mm -hmm. super fun. I know you have as well, obviously, because you, you interview quite a few people. Um, so yeah, we accomplished that goal and, uh, you know, we far exceeded what my goal was for how many listeners we could get to a podcast. I didn't really know what to expect, but we far exceeded that. 
And right now it just feels like it's something I'm having fun doing and it's fun to continue to, to try to, to grow it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of my, that's my ambition right now. It's, you know what, I'm, I'm lobbying our listeners to get us a Golden Geek, not, Geek nomination this year. Is it going to happen? Probably not. But boy, that would be so exciting because, you know, I've been, I've been voting for the Golden Geek nominations for podcasts for six or seven years now. Wouldn't it be so cool to, to be one of the people that were nominated? I have to vote for you, certainly. Thank you. Well, so anyway, that's, that's kind of my ambition right now is just continue growing it. Keep making something that people are enjoying. It's so fun. To have a community and we really do like we've got a community of people that know each other now they interact with each other because they met through our social media channels or because they you know met talking about our show and that's a blast and we've made a lot of friends um, both people who were listeners and have become friends other content creators that that we you know got a chance to collaborate with or interact with um so that's that's all been awesome and uh yeah i don't know there's no there's definitely no ambition to turn this into a job in fact i i I, um, I appreciate what I, one of the things that I feel like we do really well is we can just keep this fun and, and, you know, we're never going after the money. We're not monetizing. Mm-hmm. We're not even asking for review copies, although we do occasionally get some that we accept. Um, we just want to keep talking about board games yeah. and have other people. And the fact that people want to listen is just, it, it blows my mind. Do you have any ambition to create games? Um, I've, you know, thought about it a little bit, but to be honest, the reality is, is I'm, I'm not that smart. And so when I, when I have, I've tried to put, I've done some prototypes in the past and I realized that they were terrible. And I assume most prototypes are at first and they need a lot of work. And then I realized I could be playing these other great games that, that smarter and better designers have already put together. So I don't think so. It's, it's something I think maybe, you know, I would like to retire early at some point. That's one of my goals for my life. And if I'm able to do that or at least uh, move to a, a little bit lighter career um, at some point and I just have more free time, then maybe it's something I'd like to dabble around with or play around with right now. But right now I have so little leisure time that I want to spend it just playing the games that I love instead of instead of trying to make bad games that other people don't want to play. Do you ever find yourself, you know, kind of evaluating your hobby? You know, you're talking about having so little leisure time it's cool to be a content creator. I like being a content creator and I'm not trying to do this as a full-time job, but I'm cognizant of setting up obligations onto my, my social time, my free time. And also the people that I most want to spend time with, like by, uh, you know, like reviewing games with, uh, physical games, then I'm going to have to find people to play games with. And then the, the frequent thing to get to my table, whether it's with my friends, with my wife, or with my son, it's like, here's a new game we got to learn. <laughs> we we got to yeah. review this. You know, I got to get it to the table. I got to have something to talk about. And for the most part, everyone's really good sports about that. And then there's the other side of it, which I think a lot of content creators experience, where um, it can be real uh, anxiety ridden to you know, just see, well, why did that one get that many clicks as opposed to that one? You know, like I put so much effort into this one and I didn't put that much effort into that one. And I think you just kind of got to distance yourself and, you know, take a step back and not worry about that. Don't compare yourself to other people. Just focus on evaluating. Are you having fun? Are you doing the, the thing that you're proud of? And not really thinking about the, the, the feedback loop and and over um analyzing things but you know like if you have such 
little leisure time, do you find yourself evaluating, like, am I putting more pressure on myself through my hobbies? Yeah, all the time. Um, but I have pretty strict boundaries. And I think we the way the way we formatted the podcast was intentional. It was very intentional because we're all, um, you know, three people with with pretty weighty careers. And we knew we had a limited amount of time around our families and our jobs and stuff like that. So when we made the podcast, we specifically made it to say we're not going to um, devote a lot of time each week. Right. The podcast is we want to play a game every week anyway. Let's just get on the show and talk about that game after we play it every week. It's a good way to be. And, yeah, and so of course we're not going to get that in-depth review of like 15 plays, and I can tell you what whether the game's going to last. Like that's not who we are, you know. That's just that's not what our show does. Um, but it's important because if we were trying to be that, I think we all would have gotten burnt out, and we would not be doing this still. Mm -hmm. um, so we recognize what our boundaries were, and we set that. Now we've kind of pushed those boundaries a couple times and found that it didn't work for us. For example, we started trying to uh, get people onto our show interviews uh -huh. to what like what you do. And we found that that tended to be more work, more anxiety for us, right. you know, get pre the prep work. And even though it was great and it was cool to talk to, to, you know, other content creators on our show and to have them on. And I love doing it. Like, I love being on your show. I love talking with other content creators on their shows. That's kind of my thing. Chris and Adam don't have any interest in doing it. <laughs> but on our show, it just it, it made it more work for us. And so so we took a step back from that. And then a couple of times we reached out and, and started to reach out to content to um, um uh, publishers and saying like, Hey, you know, if you have, you know, we like your games generally, do you want to start sending us review copies? And then the obligation comes when you get review copies. Right. And so that all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't really feel like playing this tonight. Or I don't feel like talking about this game tonight. Cause there's something else I'm more excited about. And, and all that obligation is just not necessary. So we've mostly pushed that away and we, we almost always reject any review copies. We never ask for them. The rare cases being a game that we know that we're super excited about. And if a publisher happens to reach out and say, you want to play this game and we're excited about it, then we'll take it um, because it gives us an opportunity usually to talk about it earlier. And uh, and so that but but just we're, we're trying to just keep those obligations out of our life so it doesn't become a job. It still is sometimes right. right. Um, like every week we still are trying to talk about a new game. And so oftentimes every week we're, we're like, man, I got a busy week, but I've got to spend two hours learning this new game on Monday night. <laughs> So I can be ready to play it on Tuesday night and talk about it, right? So it's still work sometimes, but it's we're, we're trying to keep it to the fun parts of the work, the things I'd be doing for any game night. Um, yeah, so I think absolutely it's a risk. I think it's a risk for any content creator. You talked a little bit about you chasing the views, right? And how something you put a lot of effort in gets a lot of views. Something you put, you know, you don't put much effort in gets gets, you know, whatever. It doesn't doesn't always seem to pay off. Podcasting, I think, is a little different, and this probably isn't visible for most people. Um, you might know this because you do YouTube and and podcast, mm -hmm. but I've noticed our podcast is pretty consistent. Like right, it's it's right. just been a consistent growth. We we I can see where some content is going to change the number of listens in a week, but it's not like a YouTube thing or or something right. that's going to go viral, right? It's generally like, hey, we have a pretty steady group of listeners. But, you know, some episodes, okay, a lot of people don't want to listen about an old game. So we might drop 100 listens in a week. Right. And then the hot new game might get a couple hundred listens, right? Mm -hmm. So we can see little spikes and valleys and peaks. But for the most part, we've got a consistent listenership that's slowly growing. And so we can kind of just put out the content we want. And I think as long as we're not pushing listeners away generally, um, we don't really feel that. Although, like... I've been watching our podcast and I do pay attention. I check it a couple times a day to see how the numbers are doing this week, probably more than I should. 
And over the Christmas holiday, I noticed that, wow, listens are down this week. And I just started to like really feel bad. Mm -hmm. Like people don't like our show anymore. What did we do? Why, why, why are people losing interest? And then right after the holidays, it spiked way back up again. We caught all those listens that were gone over the holidays because, you know, people were were just not commuting. They were busy. They were with their family, normal stuff. So I can feel it. And I'm glad I'm, I'm glad we're not in a format where I would experience it more than we do. Do you look outside of podcasts or, or outside of board gaming podcasts for inspiration? Like I find that in my own work, I often am trying to reference things that I, I want to accomplish within the world of board gaming, but that's outside currently. And maybe that's not like a totally original thing, but you know, like if I'm watching Good Eats or something, you know, I'm like, God, Alton Brown really revolutionized this. Why don't I do sock puppets in my uh, Spirit Island video? Or, you know, like if I'm uh, trying to sound smart in an interview, I'm like, man, well, you know, if only I could talk more like, you know, X, Y, or Z. Not that I'm trying to ape them, but the types of conversations that are going on or the types of podcasts or the types of videos that I see outside of this sphere, seeing if I can use that to kind of hone my skills within it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I do to some extent, right? I, I because I, I love this hobby so much and I got I decided to make a podcast because I was enjoying podcasts. And mm-hmm. although I don't have as much time to listen to as many anymore, um, I think when I do have free time, I'm generally, you know, following content in, in our hobby anyway. So I'm not spending as much probably to a fault. You know, I used to enjoy a lot of outside things that I just don't spend <laughs> much time with anymore. And I'm I'm definitely missing out on a, a bigger worldview because of that. But um, Let, let's let's derail this. What are three of your non-gaming related hobbies? Give it okay, to me right so now. Three not so running, okay. which we've talked about a little bit in the past. Yep, yep, we're both runners. Running. Um, I one of us looks like a runner. <laughs> I'm not going to divulge which one looks like a runner, you're, but we both like okay, running. You're bragging. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So my other board game related hobbies. Um, yeah, see, that's interesting, right? Because I, I don't feel like a very uh, interesting person because I, I, I've i lost a lot of my old hobbies. Now, I still do love cinema, right? Okay. That's something I had a big passion for in the past. Um, but I, in that way, I think I, I don't think I lost cinema or the interest in cinema as much because of it being taken over by the board game hobby. I think it's because I used it up. Like, I, I, I saw every movie that was on every top 100 list that existed. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, there's still good cinema being made. There's still good movies being made. But, you know, I just I'm not finding as much evolutionary or exciting in that world. So uh, I read a lot. I mean, I don't know. It's the normal stuff, Jack. I'm not in that interesting of a guy. I follow politics uh, probably more than I should. Right. I, um, you know, I. Uh, yeah. So th- those are some things that I spend my free time with that not, nothing that I get too deep in, though. That's interesting that you bring up cinema because that's something that I'm trying to become more versed in. It's something that I've always loved. You know, movies were one of those things that I was explaining earlier. The 1977 Hobbit wasn't my dad's thing. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of me became focused on sci-fi and fantasy, much to my dad's dismay. But the one thing that we could connect on is the latest John Woo movie or something, you know, like we go see face off together and I go see gladiator together. We go see movies together. And so I grew up loving movies. And recently my wife and I have been doing these movie nights where we, you know, uh, are able to unilaterally pick a movie that we haven't seen 
Um, and so there's a lot of movies that we haven't seen, even the classics. People are like, oh my God, you've never seen X, Y, or Z. Well, you know, like there's a lot of movies out there. So yes, I finally saw Schindler's List or whatever. But uh, what's great about it is that either of us can pick, um, you know, like tonight is my night. I am going to pick this movie and you're along for the ride and you're going to appreciate it too. And there's none of this like, well, do you want to watch this? I don't know. What do you want to watch? Yeah. I don't know. What do you want to watch? Um, and I'm trying to become more uh, rounded out in my uh, view of cinema. But having that deliberate intention to set aside one night a week to watch some new movie and that can be anything from uh, last week uh, was 1940s Grapes of Wrath uh, adaptation uh, to, um, you know, like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Kimmy, a uh, recent uh, movie uh, with uh, uh, Zoe Kravitz in it to, you know, anything in between. Just trying to pick a movie that's interesting and it both um, gives us something to do but uh, gives my wife and I something to reflect on over the coming week, uh, which I think I'm having the inverse experience of you in some ways. I still love board games. Board games are really interesting to me. I've always loved board games since I had HeroQuest as a kid, and I've been into hobby gaming throughout my life. But I have played hundreds, thousands of board games at this point, and um, while it's still impressive to me, viewing with a critical lens cinema is something that's new and fresh and, you know, like intriguing. I'm learning yeah. so much about it. So that's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I often wish that I could go back and as with a fresh eye, go through that experience. I mean, I did a lot of that in my 20s and early 30s. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, it was great. I, I think it was a great experience to get exposed to these things. And it was very intentional. Um, but now I missed it with the experience of being an older adult and, and the life experience that could have that I, I think I could have gotten even more enjoyment out of some of those films right. seeing them now. So um, I think it's great. What I would recommend you do, though, and, and it's awesome that you can pick any movie. What I find myself doing if I don't set some kind of goal is fall back on comfort food. Mm -hmm. It's fun to watch a Marvel movie. It's fun to watch the latest action movie. It's fun to watch a comedy. But it doesn't mean that you're going to get a groundbreaking or, or, you know, really, truly, uh, you know, an experience that's going to change your life. Right. Go to a, a top hundred list of all time mm -hmm. and start working your way through it. Even if it's like every couple movies you watch. My dude, and my dude, <laughs> my wife has the AFI top 100. That's what Perfect. she's working through right now. Uh, and then I am just hungry for different things. So my picks have ranged from, uh, kind of rounding out, well, I need to watch all, you know, get all the Wes Andersons in there. But at the same time, I'm rotating in, what are some great foreign films? Okay, let's go to Kira Kurosawa and let's, uh, you know, um, let's uh, pick some Truffaut and Hitchcock. You know, there are a couple of Hitchcocks that I haven't seen. I am going to some degree of comfort food in that yeah. I'm exposing myself to things that I already know, but I'm trying to be cognizant of like what are experiences I haven't had and try to rotate through all of those. So even if Wes Anderson is like, I know I'm going to love every single film of his that I put on as part of these movie nights, that might be every 10th movie I get to. And I keep a watch list 
uh, of the, the movies that I'm watching as well as the ones that I want to watch. And then I try to go, what is drastically different than the last five picks that I've uh, picked here? Some movie that I've always wanted to watch. And, you know, that's yeah. how we rotate through because I want something wild and I want something weird. Yeah, sounds like a, a fun exploration. I wish I was right there on that journey with you. What's your favorite <laughs> Wes Anderson film? Um, you know, I'm going to have to say... Uh, Going for um, the dark horse contender here, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, it's my number two. Uh, yeah, number two. yeah. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel uh, is maybe tied uh, right there. And being someone who has a close but also somewhat fraught relationship with brothers, uh, you know, like Darjeeling Limited is incredible. But uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is the one that I continually come back to. It's the one that I probably quote the most in my house, but it's also the one that I think I most often think about. His speech about why he does what he does, and he's self-reflecting with the water in the background and thinking about how he needs to impress other people. The uh, the the emphasis on what it means to be different, uh, and then the uh, the wolf at the end. I think about those scenes all the time. Like it's weird how applicable it is in my life. What's your favorite Wes Anderson movie? Moonrise Kingdom is my oh, number it's one. so good. And then uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and then uh, the Dark Horse for me. What I think most people don't have a really you know great view of, but that's the Life Aquatic. Oh, it's um, also so good. Yeah, just the three movies that just charm me every time that just bring so much joy to me. I was not a big fan, sadly, of um, the uh, the French Dispatch, yeah, the yeah. most recent film. Um, good, some good stuff in there, but it, it just dragged a little bit. Mm -hmm. But but beyond that, I've, I've totally loved all of his films. Life Aquatic is so melancholy. All of his movies are melancholy, but that one in particular is just like it hits different. That that, that yeah. is, um, and the set unbelievable i mean like at grand budapest hotel is one of my all-time favorites and he, of course he utilizes these incredibly intricate sets um but uh, i think i haven't been so impressed by a set in a movie as i have with life aquatic that was just yeah and the life aquatic the, the music soundtrack is mm -hmm. one of my favorite soundtracks of all time as well just a, a perfect hit throughout a, a variety of different tones in there but everything hits couple couple perfect david bowie tracks used yeah yeah you know i um i was playing caper europe have you played the board game caper europe i haven't okay so it's uh it's by Keymaster games the makers of parks uh and the first thing that i thought when i uh pulled that game out was oh my god these people have played or have watched so much wes anderson <laughs> uh the uh the insert for it is the almost kind of like velvety uh, it has this 1960s European, uh, like, spy chic uh, aspect. Everything is meticulously twee. Uh, it is so Wes Anderson, but not in a, like, goofy parody way, but in a, a legitimate loving way. And it extends beyond just the, the, uh, the illustrations. It goes into, like I said, the insert, the uh, components. Um, and even some of the idiosyncrasies of how the game plays uh, or communicates information is just like, okay, uh, I know exactly tonally what they were trying to go for here. 
You know, it's so funny. I think that's a great topic to talk about here when we're talking about movies or cinema in relation. I had, again, a little bit of a conversation, uh, maybe a discussion with a listener on Twitter the other day, because we often talk about theme and production Mm -hmm. and how important it is to us. Now, I am more mechanically focused for sure, but I think you can't deny that that having a great theme and, and having that brought through in the production, and it can be from the minute you open the box to what's in the rule book mm-hmm. to every single component elevates the experience. Oh yeah. And you know and he said, "Well, would you ever, you know, not not watch a movie with a great script because of the production?" And I was like, "Yes, it makes a huge difference." It's right? part of the cohesive whole. It, exactly. Like a Wes Anderson film could still be a well-written film, you know, a quirky well-written film, but if you didn't also put Wes Anderson's vision for the production, for the mm-hmm. style, it wouldn't be a Wes Anderson film, and it would have it wouldn't have been as special as they are, right? And that's the, that's the same thing with game board production as well. Like y- you can do it, right? You can put a great package, and Keymaster is is great at that. And mm-hmm. some of these some of these publishers, I, and I think it really honestly has to do with the people who are running these publishing companies mm-hmm. and what their vision is. And some of them don't care, and you know some of their audience doesn't care. You can look at Aaliyah and Ravensburger in Germany, right? right. Well, their their audience traditionally hasn't cared mm-hmm. and so they've never put a lot of effort and you know time into the into the quality of production but um look at scythe by stonemeyer games yeah right that game just elevated what board games could be and it's still at the top because you know jamie stegmeyer saw jakob Brzezalski's artwork and said i want to create a game in that world and they brought that world into this game and you know, it, it's 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 not scythe because of the cool mechanics, and there's some in there. It's scythe because it's this whole package of this amazing world and this amazing production with a fun gameplay on it as well. I think that's one of the most frustrating things about the discussion in our hobby, and I think that this is evolving, but a lot of people are dismissive towards Euro games, you know, mechanic-first games as being unthematic. And I, I think that's not necessarily true. You know, like, you can have abstractions. It's not like you have a warrior and they're literally swinging a sword. But then again, even in a mini game that you're rolling around, it's still an abstraction. It's still a little statue. It's not like they're actually swinging a sword. It's not thematic in the way that a video game is thematic. And I, I think about this a lot, um, like... A good example to me is Lords of Waterdeep. It is a game that a lot of people are like, that's just a pasted on theme. It's a pasted theme um, because, you know, it could be any city or it could be any uh, set of different four occupations. But I, I, I disagree. The fact that it gives you a thematic context. Okay, you are a quest giver in a city. You're going to recruit these missions that are quests that you're going to send these warriors on or, or these adventures on and then you're going to collect the adventures and then cast them out onto that and reap some sort of rewards because it was beneficial to you that thematic explanation is also entirely appropriate as a mechanical explanation for the game too and uh, I think that's really the magic of a good board game. Like, it doesn't have to be beautiful. Beautiful is a big part of it. Um, and I don't think that it has to be, like, a really uh, deep theme, though that can be part of it. Uh, but I think when there is a way of helping the player 
intuitively understand what's supposed to happen mechanically based off of what that mechanic is representing thematically is incredible. And when that works out, you know, it, it absolutely elevates the game in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, and I love your, you know, using Lords of Waterdeep as an example. And one of the things that Lords of Waterdeep uses as a mechanism is worker placement. Mm -hmm. And I think worker placement is a wonderfully thematic mechanism because you literally have a figure that is sending out to do a task. Mm -hmm. And then that task is producing something. And, you know, Agricola is another great example of that. And Lords of Waterdeep, you know, probably missed because of its era a little bit with some of the ways that it tried to represent that theme. I mean, cubes instead of figures made a big difference for a lot of people thematically, right? Right. And and the fact that, you know, modern artwork today on those quest cards would have had the art, you know, a larger part of it mm -hmm. or would have made the, the the text more readable on it because right now it's hard to be part of the story when you, you know, when it's just, uh, you know, a tiny text that you can't even read the, the you know, the the uh, the flavor text on it and things like that. So I think Lords of Waterdeep, I 100% agree with you, is a, is a great thematic mechanical mix um, that could have been done better and would be if it was done today. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a, that's a great, great, uh, point of discussion on this topic. I think that we are just calling out for a Lords of Waterdeep revised edition. I mean, yep, Hasbro, absolutely. you have screwed up enough <laughs> at this point. Your salvation is in, uh, doing a revised edition of Lords of Waterdeep. I mean, hundred percent. Come on guys. You're leaving money on the table here. Well, man, I could be talking to you about this all day, but uh, we do have to uh, cut it at some point. So let's end this with like, what's on the horizon? What can people expect over the next couple of months on the Board Game Hot Takes podcast? Do you have any previews of some games that you're really hoping to get on there? Any special episodes or milestones? The, the next episode we're going to be doing i don't know exactly when this is going to release so you know this may be before that episode that the next episode that i'm really excited about is going to be we're going to cover two really hot new expansions one that i know you've already talked about which is um the the new expansion for dude imperium oh yeah and so we're going to be covering that in one of our hot take reviews where we play the game and immediately talk about it and the other is you happen to have it behind you but yep. the new tapestry expansion oh geez um, you're covering that i wonder <laughs> you know like uh, yeah uh, so I'm really excited about that. This was our first opportunity to get one of these hot, you know, kind of pre-release um, reviews. And so that episode's going to drop on, I think it's February 20. You'll you probably know the date, but I think it's February 20 is the is the embargo, embargo date. date. Exactly. And, well, I've never been part of an embargo. So I feel, Isn't it exciting? I feel very special. Yeah. Very yeah. exciting. The... Uh, so, so really excited to talk about both of those expansions. Um, I haven't even played uh, Immortality, the Dune Imperium one yet, and I've been dying to get that played even though I have it here. So that's going to be special for me. Uh, beyond that, we don't plan too far in advance. Our, our show tends to be like, what do we feel like playing this week and talking about? So that's about the only thing I got to talk about. I will say I think our format could use some freshening up. And so I am hoping I got to talk with my co-hosts about this, but I'm hoping to maybe put out a listener survey, get a get a sense for where we should improve things, get a sense for what we can enhance, what's working, what's not. So I think we have an opportunity to, to you know, we, we've got a well-worn format at this point that's been pretty consistent for three years with slight adjustments. And it's probably time to find out what uh, what we can really do to 
get people excited and, and freshen it up a little bit. Sounds like a plan, man. Well, for everyone at home, you know how to get podcasts. You know how to find people. You can find Board Game Hot Takes on anywhere you want to get podcasts and also follow them on Twitter because they put out a lot of information and are much better about engaging the audience than I am sometimes about this stuff. I see so many intriguing polls and looking for feedback and Last of all, make sure that you're going on to Board Game Geek. This is a podcast that deserves the Golden Geek nomination. So thanks so much for coming on to the show, Tim. This has been a blast. Jack, thank you for having me. I love being a part of it. Can't wait till next time. All right, later, man.